You're listening to Tales from Campalua Study. Original horror stories to chill your bones. Okay, alright everyone, it's your boy Wes over here, returning back to my camp. I'm going to rename Wes Camp yeah. uh, for yeah, another episode camp. of Awesome Campfire Stories. And, uh, yeah, we can enjoy some s'mores while we're telling this nice story, and uh, let's just kick it off. We're out of marshmallows. Chocolate. All right. <laughs> <laughs> also, is. also, it's your grandfather's camp. Uh, it's mine. <laughs> we'll also go ahead and mention Brady's not here this week with us because he's up at the cabins. He's a sleepyhead. Yeah. He sleeps. What a loser. Loser. He also loser. fell asleep before we got to see the rope swing move last week. Oh yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it did move by itself. It was pretty windy. No wind. <laughs> I licked my finger and everything. There was no wind. The I picked up grass and it went that way. <laughs> that was the ghost. <laughs> oh, the ghost moved the swing and, and the grass. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. Okay. Hmm. So, turns out the story was true. Yes. Don't <laughs> so I guess it's a good thing you didn't go into the woods. Exactly, I would be dead, and you guys would feel bad. Mm. Or I mean, it's not necessarily that you would be dead because. But speaking of people story, dying and going missing, I'm pretty counselors sure counselors did go in there, but they didn't go by themselves. Right. Also, maybe it's just kids. Maybe now that we're older, Kenny doesn't want to play with us anymore. Probably not. Listen. So he likes playing with little kids. He's a little kid, so yeah, don't make it weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they're for real. I'm pretty sure there's a kid missing. Really? Yeah, like I was doing my head count during lunch today. Right. <laughs> and I got 19 instead of 20. What? For my part. Were you supposed okay, to have 20? Yes. Did One that's somebody? amateur numbers. Did you tell Roger. Well, no, because I'm pretty sure I know which kid is missing. Oh. Is, is it a look for it is it Mika- It's yeah, Mika- Michaela. Oh my god. Good riddance. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Hit that girl. That was mean. Seriously, so, though. But seriously, she's a brat. And I think she could just walk around in the woods for a while. Oh, my God. <laughs> Kenny might need She might not, be, <laughs> might not be in the woods. She may have gone home. <laughs> yeah. Hitched a ride. That'd be good. She's eight. Oh, she didn't pay for her last meal, so. So people would probably pick her up. <laughs> Looks like you're paying for it. I guess. Yeah, you're rich, right? Your grandpa owns the camp. Yeah. I'll probably. You're all the time bragging about that. My camp. Yeah, your camp. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah, right. If it's your camp, I guess you should probably find Michaela. Yeah, you're in charge here. (laughs) That means I can tell you guys what to do, so. Damn. You guys just go. (laughs) (laughs) We all know Roger's in charge. We'll see you later, Courtney. Have fun looking for him. He's the damn camp counselor. Well, not me. Camp director. That's his name. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Michaela? It's I always just you. told you she was missing. You did the head count. I don't know. So that means <laughs> you did your head count. Did you know how well you count? So we're not sure. Not well, so. It's probably 20. She's probably asleep. Yeah. She's probably fine. fine. That's what we'll say. Yeah, fine. sure. We just don't, don't worry about that. another kid missing. Yeah, we're fine. Okay. Anyways. We'll probably read a story now. All right. Well, tonight's story. Um, I'll be reading it. <clears throat> it's called Burning Sage. This story is long, so we've decided to cut it into two parts. We'll read the second part next week, so I'm going to read half this story. Burning Sage, Part 1. Jacqueline Roberts used to be the prettiest girl in school. Anthony hardly even recognizes her when she comes knocking on his door 20 years later, cheeks sunken in, hair thinning. She looks sickly and sleep-deprived. He wonders how long it has been since she has eaten. 
She's now sitting on his tattered green couch in his small apartment, sipping coffee he offered her after several minutes of awkward small talk. She sets her mug down on the table and looks him in the eyes. Anthony Glass, she sighs for the third time. You look good. She is lying, of course. Anthony knows how he has aged. At this rate, he thinks himself lucky to still have his hair, though once wavy blonde is now becoming a shiny silver. He sometimes looks in the mirror and finds it hard to believe he is only 37. God knows he feels a lot older. So do you, Anthony lies in return. In reality, he considers the very sight of her unnerving. It isn't Jacqueline he is appalled by, but the horrible memories she brings with her. You're wondering why I'm here, Jacqueline states matter-of-factly. Actually, so many thoughts are running rabid through Anthony's mind, he hadn't had time to wonder that. Now that he thinks about it, though, it is 1998. She must be here to invite him to their 20-year reunion. It's tomorrow night. Anthony had received a mail invitation weeks ago from someone whose name he could not remember. It's about Sage, Jacqueline blurts. This thrusts Anthony to attention. Taken aback, he tries to respond but can't. They had promised never to talk about Sage again. Why, of all times, does Jacqueline feel the need to bring her up now? I thought we were reminiscing, Anthony says dumbly. We are, but I still need to pick up Lando. Orlando Graves? Holy shit, I haven't seen him since... He stops, and they both know why. Twenty minutes later, they are leaving together, and Anthony, suitcase in tow, is locking up his one-bedroom Nashville apartment. He knows he has nothing of value, but he locks his door out of habit. He came quite accustomed to locks working in the prison. Locks mean safety. They mean security. Now, however, leaving with Jacqueline, returning to his hometown, he feels anything but secure. Jacqueline had been persistent, though. It's urgent, she said. It's a matter of life and death. So here he is, descending the building staircase in a silence more awkward than their previous small talk. Anthony desperately wants to know what is going on. Why had she been so vague? After all this time, what could possibly be happening concerning Sage? They walk out the main doors and parked there, front and center, is Jacqueline's 1969 Lincoln Continental, its sleek black exterior spotless. Unlike her, it hasn't changed a bit. Memories wash over Anthony just as they had when he first saw Jacqueline. But these memories come in waves much more violent. Dresses, tuxes, boutonnieres dancing, the vivid scene hits him like a semi. It was prom night, 1978, in Adele, Georgia. Anthony Glass, 17, had taken Jepson, his girlfriend of two years. They carpooled with a gang of their closest friends in Jacqueline's Lincoln. Jacqueline and Orlando had agreed to go together as friends, and their mutual pal Jamie had tagged along as a fifth wheel. Anthony hardly remembers a thing of the actual prom, but the ride back is clear as day. It was nearly 2 a.m. They were on a winding back road headed to Jamie's house. Orlando, in the front passenger seat, was blaring Stayin' Alive on the radio. Still wired from prom, all five of the teens were singing and dancing along. Jacqueline absent-mindedly, Anthony hopes, sped up and began taking curves more sharply. They approached a bright yellow Camaro parked on the side of the road, blinking its hazard lights, for which Jacqueline did not even slow down. If we had stopped for that yellow car, she said as they continued on, we would have ended up like those stupid teenagers in the horror movies. The others laughed and went on singing as the song reached everyone's favorite part. They sang the chorus in perfect harmony. Anthony smiles at that memory, but it immediately fades because then he remembers what happened next. Jacqueline swerved around an especially sharp curve, and for a split second, Anthony saw the girl. Her back was turned, but Anthony saw her long blonde pigtails with white ribbons tied around them. White ribbons that matched her clean white shirt which she had tucked into bell-bottom jeans that came up to her navel. The girl didn't even have time to turn around, and Anthony didn't have time to shout. 
Jepson cried out, and Jacqueline slammed on the brakes. The tire squealed as the front end of the Lincoln smacked into the girl, and with a dull thud she went soaring over the car. They finally came to a stop as the girl landed behind them. Anthony heard the loud crack of her body against the pavement, a sound he has never forgotten. Anthony sunk into the back seat. He felt as if his heart had stopped and his veins had turned to ice. A cold terror came over him, and he was too afraid to turn around. Anthony shakes his head, dismissing his thoughts. Jacqueline is standing by the car with the driver's side door open. She is glaring at him anxiously. He had to have been staring at the car for at least two minutes now. Sorry, he says, as he throws his suitcase in the trunk. He slips into the passenger seat, trying not to picture the grill covered in blood. We're picking up Orlando from the airport in Atlanta, Jacqueline says once they're on the road. Where has he been? asks Anthony. Germany. He's been stationed there with the Air Force for almost a year, but he starts his leave today. I called him and he's okay with us coming. I didn't know Lando was in the military, Anthony admits, feeling guilty for the first time for losing touch. He enrolled right after high school. He's been in service for nearly 20 years. Anthony looks at his feet. As if reading his mind, Jacqueline adds, I've only spoken to him a few times. I think we all kind of felt like we needed to drift apart. Anthony knows she is right. He didn't move to Tennessee to become a prison guard, that's for sure. So what do you do? She asks. Um, I'm kind of in between jobs right now, he replies, thinking of when he'll receive his next unemployment check. I got fired last year, he admits, for showing up to work drunk. Anthony was a raging alcoholic for years after he moved to Nashville. He had no family or friends to step in. His pink slip from the warden was his intervention. Now, six months sober, Anthony is starting to feel like he needs a scotch. They arrive at baggage claim hours later, exhausted from the drive. There he is, exclaims Jacqueline, pointing. Anthony peers through the crowd, but he can't find the pudgy little kid he went to school with anywhere. Instead, he sees a tall, trim man, a duffel bag thrown over his shoulder. He is 38 now, but to Anthony, he doesn't look a day over 25. His orange hair is shaved to a crew cut, and his brown eyes brighten when he sees Jacqueline and Anthony approaching. Hey, Big Red, Anthony teases. Orlando smirks. Don't you call me that, Glass, he threatens, shaking a fist. Jacqueline laughs, pulling Orlando into a hug. Reunited, the three pile into the Lincoln, the airman's duffel bag crammed into the trunk, much like Sage's body 20 years prior. Anthony pushes the thought from his mind. So what have you been into these past few decades, eh? Orlando asks from the back seat. Anthony cringes at the recognizable sound of his old high school nickname. The last time he can remember being called A is the night they killed Sage. You're slipping, eh? Orlando had shouted. The night sky was clear and the teenager's path was lit by the moon. Orlando was carrying the girl by her arms, and Anthony held her by her feet, her ankles slipping from the grasp of his sweaty palms. The side of the body revolted him, her left leg appearing to be on sideways and her knee split directly down the middle. Is this an okay place? Orlando asked, exhaling heavily. Anthony looked around. They were surrounded by trees and darkness. They were in the center of Windy Chase Wood, the most secluded area they could think of quickly. According to Jacqueline, it was their only resort. They couldn't call the police and they certainly couldn't leave her in the street. The terrified friends didn't even have a shovel and had to dig with their hands. Anthony remembers returning home the next morning, his tuxedo caked with blood and dirt. Anthony, are you okay? Jacqueline eyes him suspiciously from behind the wheel. Not much, Anthony replies, only half listening. I mean, yeah, I'm fine. He leans his head against the window, staring out at traffic. It's nearly nightfall when they pass a sign announcing their arrival to Adele. Here we are, Orlando exclaims with mock enthusiasm. At that moment, the car radio cuts on. Anthony jumps and turns to Jacqueline, who is looking anxious. White noise streams through the speakers. 
Anthony can barely make out a recognizable tune behind the static. Music loud and women warm have been kicked around since I was born. Now it's alright, it's okay, Jacqueline switches off the radio with a flick of her wrist. Anthony knows she remembers the song too. It was staying alive by the Bee Gees. Anthony stares at the radio, having turned on by itself. Suddenly, Jacqueline opens her mouth and emits a shrill, ear-piercing shriek. Anthony jerks his attention to her and sees her mouth open inhumanly wide. It's as if, like a python, she has unhinged her jaw. He feels a bump beneath the tires. He turns to face the front and sees an apparition standing in the windshield. It is Sage Winters, no doubt. Her cold eyes, dead set on him. Slightly transparent, her face is clear and alive, free of broken bones or gashes. Then, just as quickly as she had appeared, she is gone. The Lincoln skids to a halt, and Jacqueline is quiet once more. It was a squirrel! yells Orlando. It was just a squirrel. Had he not seen her? Anthony wonders. Jacqueline must have. She had sure been frightened by something. Anthony's heart continues to race as he turns around in his seat to confirm Orlando's statement. It's true. Right where the carcass of a young girl should be lays the crushed rodent. Anthony slumps back in his seat and rubs his forehead. They finish the drive to Jacqueline's home in silence. After retrieving their belongings from the trunk, Anthony and Orlando approach the small gray house and follow Jacqueline up the creaking steps to her front door. As she shuffles through her keys, Anthony notices the peeling paint, the falling shingles, and the broken window boarded up with cardboard and duct tape. Jacqueline enters first and then steps aside, presenting her home to the two men. I know it isn't much, she says as they move into the cramped living area. She closes the door and Anthony breathes in the musty atmosphere. Anthony steps further into the small, untidy room. But it's cozy, isn't it? Jacqueline asks. Sure is, he lies, his claustrophobia setting in. You know, we could have stayed at my place in the city, Orlando says, and drove down for the reunion tomorrow. It's a three-bedroom, believe it or not, Jacqueline replies defensively. Do you live here alone? Orlando asks. Yes, but I do have visitors. Jacqueline motions for them to follow her down the hallway and shows them to separate bedrooms adjacent to her own. Meet me in the kitchen once you have put away your things. We have a lot to talk about. Anthony joins Jacqueline in the kitchen immediately after putting his suitcase down. He's more than ready to get some information. Why had Orlando mentioned attending the reunion, for instance? He obviously has no idea why they are here. At Jacqueline's request, Anthony sits down across the table from her. Orlando enters the room cheerfully and asks Jacqueline for a beer. Can I get you one, eh? She asks as she slides the bottle across the table to Orlando. No thanks, Anthony replies reluctantly. All right, Jacqueline says as she returns to her seat. I'm just going to tell you. I don't care if you think I'm crazy. I'm being haunted. <laughs> what, have you assembled us as ghost hunters or something? Orlando laughs. I thought we were going to play some cards or something. Anthony, however, isn't surprised. After what he saw in the car, he is ready to believe just about anything. Do you believe in the supernatural, Lando? She asks sternly. Come on. Orlando smiles. Are you serious? Jacqueline is not blinking, and Orlando's infliction changes. Well, why do you think you're being haunted? These past few weeks, she begins gravely, I've seen things. Visions. And they are not memories. They're corrupt. I strongly believe it is Sage Winters. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I've had my fair share of night terrors, Orlando interrupts. But what gives you the idea that something paranormal is happening here? These aren't bad dreams, Jacqueline snaps. I saw her on the road today. Anthony contemplates speaking up. He had seen her too, after all. But Orlando continues to argue. What, when you hit that squirrel? I'm not saying we didn't hit a squirrel, Orlando. That's not the point. I saw her. And the song, Anthony chimes in. Staying alive, you heard it. It was on the radio, just like it was then. You saw her too. 
Jacqueline says, staring at Anthony, her eyes filling with tears. Anthony looks away, unable to admit aloud that he, too, might be crazy. Anyway, Jacqueline continues, regaining her composure. I think this happened to Jepson and Jamie as well. Anthony flinches at the mention of his late girlfriend's name. Jepson had committed suicide just weeks after the accident. It was their graduation day. That morning, Jepson had smiled and accepted her diploma, and that night, her parents found her on the bathroom floor with her wrists slit. Anthony bites back tears. He had known she was shaken up, sure, but he never thought she would take her own life. She was only 18. That was when he decided to move away, and not coincidentally when he started drinking. Jacqueline elaborates after a quick glimpse to Anthony. Jepson killed herself just a few weeks after we buried Sage. And then, exactly ten years later, on the day of our ten-year reunion, in fact, Jamie hanged himself. Now, I understand that this could be a coincidence, but you two didn't go to the ten-year reunion. I did, and I ran into Jamie. I talked to him. He was jumpy and afraid. He looked ill, and he described exactly what I'm going through now. He said he couldn't sleep and that he was seeing things and hearing things. I thought he had gone mad from the stress or the guilt. But I was fine until now, ten years later. So you think Sage Winters is coming after all of us, one of us every ten years? Anthony asks. Exactly. I think she is a vengeful spirit. She took Jepson in 78, Jamie in 88, and now she's coming for me, and in ten years she will come for one of you. But I've done some research. Ours is not a unique experience. According to various mythologies, we can kill her if we burn her remains. Orlando objects. Kill her? She's already dead! You want us to tramp off through the woods and dig up a dead girl after 20 years? We won't get caught, Jacqueline assures. I don't care! That is a disgusting idea, Orlando exclaims, his voice rising. Anthony sits in his chair as they argue. He believes everything Jacqueline has said to be true. It is the only explanation. Orlando, Anthony thinks, believes her too, and is just frightened. Anthony doesn't blame him. He is afraid a little himself. But he wants to kill the thing that killed his girlfriend. He's on board with the plan. He knows Orlando will be too, once he comes to his senses. Let's sleep on it, Anthony insists, in hopes of giving Orlando time to cool off and Jacqueline time to think of a different approach. It is another five minutes before he can get them to agree and go to their bedrooms. It is after midnight when Anthony finally gets to his room. Exhausted, he falls down onto the neatly made twin bed and is asleep instantly. It wasn't all my fault, you know, Jacqueline says. I didn't carry her or shove her body in the trunk. I didn't dig the hole, and I didn't shovel dirt into her open eyes. You think you're so innocent, don't you? You could have done something, you know. You could have called the police, but you didn't. You are guilty, eh? And one day, you'll have to own up to that. Just like Jepson and Jamie. Just like Jacqueline and Orlando. The scene changes suddenly, and Anthony is watching the news. It is 1978, and he is 17 again. On the screen is a young lady reporter standing in front of a yellow Camaro parked on the side of the road, the headline, Missing Girl, before her. She says the girl's name. Sage Winters was last seen by her parents early yesterday evening. A picture of the girl flashes onto the screen. Her hair is down in the photo, and she is smiling widely. Anthony feels like he has seen this picture before and begins to think he might be dreaming. That's when her complexion starts to change. Sage begins to look angry. She turns her head ever so slightly so that she is now staring directly at him through the television set. Still grinning, she opens her mouth and screams. Anthony is frightened, but he leans in closer as he sees something moving deep in her throat. He is horrified to find 
a snake emerging, slithering slowly through her teeth, out of his TV and onto the floor in front of him. Anthony has a fleeting urge to touch it and reaches forward. The serpent coils and hisses. Anthony's hand inches closer. Anthony wakes bolt upright to a dark room. He finds himself soaked in a cold sweat and all the pillows and blankets on the floor. His eyes take a minute to adjust before he can read on his watch that it is 2 a.m. Anthony hasn't had a nightmare in years, but he decides he doesn't quite enjoy them. Still feeling uneasy, his eyes dart around the room. The window, lacking blinds and curtains, is shut and locked. He looks in the other direction toward the open doorway. The hall remains unlit. Do people usually sleep in complete darkness? Anthony wonders. He himself usually leaves on his TV. But, in fact, he doesn't recollect seeing one in this house at all. All of a sudden, a high-pitched scream shatters his thoughts. He leaps out of bed and races to the door, which slams shut of its own accord. As he struggles with the doorknob, he hears loud stomping pass by in the hall. He pulls and pulls at the handle, his heart feeling as if it may explode any second. He's about to give up and break the door down when it suddenly swings open effortlessly. Escaping the room, however, proves less challenging than navigating the unfamiliar hallway without the convenience of sight. Anthony finally makes his way to Jacqueline's room and discovers an awestruck Orlando staring agape at the ceiling. Anthony is about to ask him what happened when he looks up and sees Jacqueline suspended in midair above her bed. Her back is arched severely and her neck is bent unnaturally. Her eyes and mouth are open, but she doesn't appear to be conscious. Anthony cannot tell if she's breathing. At that moment, Jacqueline is thrust violently back into her bed, the box spring breaking loudly. Orlando and Anthony run to her side as she sits up blinking sleepily. It was just a bad dream, she says. We have to go tonight, Anthony says. We have to go right now. Why, what happened? Jacqueline pleads. You really don't remember a thing? Orlando asks. What? Would someone please tell me what's happened? Throwing a red gallon container of gasoline and three shovels into the trunk, Anthony answers, something big. And that's the end of part one. To be continued. To be continued. <coughs> what's gonna happen? Do I really have to wait till next week to hear this? Next yes. week. <laughs> Join us next week. <laughs> oh. Burning Stage part one was written by Justin Grayson and read by... Neat. Join us next Friday at dusk for another campfire tale to keep you up at night. Send your scary story to Camp Owensidoni. <laughs> okay, start over. Send us your scary story at Camp Alewastodi. At gmail.com. And we'll feature it in the future episode. Also, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening to the tales from Camp Alewastodi. Ooh, okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>